0: Let me remind you of some very important things that have been said by Jesus and about Jesus. Starting with the fact that Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Also, Jesus Christ is the one who, according to Acts 20, 28, bought the church with his own blood, not only that, Jesus is the one who said he would send his spirit after he had been gone and he would send his spirit and his spirit would glorify him. Not only that, in Colossians chapter, and by the way, that's in John chapter 16, verse 14, Colossians 1, 18 teaches us, therefore, that Jesus Christ is to have first place in Everything. Christ said he would build his church. He bought the church with his blood. He sends his spirit to glorify him so that Christ is to have preeminence in the church in everything. And therefore, it is crucial that we understand this whole matter of the Christianness of Christianity. Or, to put it another way, the centrality of Christ in christian And I know that's not the right way to say it, but it's my new favorite way to say it. The centrality of Christ, because we're talking about Christian or christian And maybe it's helpful to say it that strange way that makes our ears kind of get tweaked, because it reminds us of what's been intended to be all along, Christianity is about Christ. But we get so used to saying it, and that name has been borrowed and changed and hijacked by so many, so many times that Christianity is perhaps just another name for a club or a religious, or, a religious organization. But when we're talking about genuine, authentic Christianity, we are talking about Christianity. To the point where as a pastor and as a Christian, I want so badly and I'm asking God to help us as a church and as Christians here to not just say things like Christ-centered. Everyone says Christ-centered, and rightfully so. But to actually, by the grace of God, be genuinely Christ-centered. To be Christians. <laughs> to be all about him and that is heartbeat 101 abc's one two threes for us if we're really christians and that's what's led to this little series that we've been doing called the de-christianization of the christian church the de-christianizing if you want of the christian church so we're looking at it from a negative perspective somewhat of a historical perspective because we don't want to be christian in name only we actually want to be Christians where Christ has preeminence in everything. He's the hero of the drama. From Genesis to Revelation, ultimately, he has leading role. It's about him. Whether it's pointing toward him, pointing back to him, he is central in everything. And so that's what we're focusing on, even in this negative sense, looking at the challenges, the isms, those those things that undermine authentic Christianity and have undermined authentic Christianity since early on. And history is littered, the the historical landscape is littered with people like you and like me who never started off with the wrong motives or the wrong intentions, perhaps with the best of intentions. Sometimes because they weren't clear on what the dangers were, they ended up being casualties. And so by God's grace, let's commit ourselves to learning some of these challenges that undermine authentic Christianity so that we might learn from history and learn from perhaps errors that have gone before us so that genuinely, truly, by the grace of God, we would not just say we're Christians, we would be Christians. That's my plea. That's my pastoral passion. And so we've been looking at a number of isms. And we've looked at seven of them so far, and uh, I'll just list them now, and they might make your head spin. I'm not sure. I'm not going to define them. Again, you can uh, enjoy the benefits of the World Wide Web and go to iTunes and get the podcasts if you'd like, or our website. We looked at moralism. We looked at legalism. We looked at narcissism. We looked at deism. We looked at inclusivism. We looked at mysticism, and we looked at theological liberalism. And uh, maybe that's good dinner table conversation. Do you remember what each of those is? And uh, they're not that complicated, but the ism gives it a good effect. So (laughs) we've been looking at those, and this morning we're going to look at yet another ism. tried to do two first service and uh, wasn't able to do so because of my own limitations. Perhaps the Spirit of God's leading, I would like to hope. Um, But this morning we're going to talk about pragmatism. We're going to talk about pragmatism, and uh, before we open our text, um, let me give you a simple way of understanding pragmatism. Pragmatism is not, not inherently bad. We're all pragmatists in one sense. Um, we eat food because if we don't eat food, we'll die. The idea of pragmatism is if it works, it's good. If it works, it's, it's right, even. And so uh, I set my alarm most days, tragically every day. <laughs> because it really is helpful in waking me up in the morning. And that's just being pragmatic. We do basic pragmatic things. We we set a time when we're going to meet. And we say we're going to meet at 11 and you come at 11:10. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> pragmatism isn't bad. It's it's fine. It's it's just a, it's a basic reality of living. Where pragmatism is deadly is when pragmatism comes into the life of Christianity, specifically when it comes to our methods, our methods of growth and our methods of outreach, our methods of evangelism. And this is just a killer for us. One sure way to eventually lead a dead church or become part of a dead church or be a member of a dead church would be to subscribe or buy into a pragmatic mindset of ministry. As long as we do these things, we will have a bigger church. As long as we follow this marketing philosophy, it ends up being a marketing kind of mindset. Find out what people are looking for, we'll make sure we deliver that kind of message, and we will be successful. And so where you have this kind of consumer, kind of marketing mindset, you can succeed. Look at all the religions that are huge in the world. You can succeed, but it doesn't mean you're being faithful to the gospel, which has to do with the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That right there is a marketing disaster because if you have the perfect life of Christ, it's already suggesting that you don't live a perfect life. And then you have the perfect substitutionary death of Christ for. Should I say it? Sinners for lawbreakers, for spiritual rebels on the cross where God pours out his his just wrath on his son. This is a marketing disaster. This is not what people are looking for. We're not catering to anyone's felt needs, so to speak. And then he rose again from the dead so that we could have power over sin by God's grace and have newness of life. That's the Christian gospel. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can read about it in Romans. You can read about it in Colossians, Galatians, all over the place. But Christianity is essentially about Christ and his gospel, and it's not about finding out what others are looking for so that we can give it to them. It's not a numbers-driven kind of thing. Having said all of that, please remember that numbers aren't necessarily bad. And sometimes in the Bible, numbers are meant to be exceptional And we go, wow. For example, let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're just going to look at some different passages that relate to this issue of pragmatism so we might think it through, not so that we can know more, but we're we're making decisions, Uh, Omaha Bible Church, every day, every week, about being Christian or not being Christian, subscribing to something else or being faithful to Christ. We need to think through this issue, so we'll look at a number of passages, and it should help us to be faithful to the gospel and to gospel outreach, but if it's numbers-driven first and foremost, it's just inevitable that what we're going to have to do is trim the message. You know, people don't want to be told that they're an offense to God. I mean, I don't even say it that way without some kind of qualifier or some kind of explanation. That's not how I start the conversation, but it's true. Uh, people don't want to know that, that what Romans 5 says, that they're the enemy of God apart from being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. That's not a feel-good message that that you're a good person. It's not what we're looking for. And so the gospel, as we will see even in the Bible, it talks about this, is, is, is offensive. Because it tells you you can't do it. That's why you need someone who can do it. But if we start with the mindset of how can we get a crowd, we have to trim the edges off that edgy message called the gospel. But numbers are sometimes important. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And based upon the numbers in the book of Acts, I think that's meant to, to be flashing. For us to go, wow, 3,000 people. That's a lot of people. 3,000 people were baptized. 3,000 people were converted to Christ. That was a good day. <laughs> you know, 3,000 more added to, if I had a thousand tongues to sing. <laughs> 3,000 more people added to the Hallelujah chorus, glorifying Christ. Wow, that, that is awesome. Why don't we try to have another 3,000 like happened then? And by the way, I'm all for that. Let's plead with God. Please, God, we would love to see you do something extraordinary when it comes to blessing the ministry of the gospel. But please, let's remember that Peter wasn't taking a survey of the Jews, saying, what are you looking for in a, you know, a new twist when it comes to religion? You know? he, he, he didn't take that kind of approach at all. What Peter did was Peter preached the undiluted, uncompromised, untrimmed, unwatered down, however you want to say it, clear gospel. We're not going to take the time to read through the whole sermon, but beginning in verse 14, he's preaching there to these Jews. He's being very clear. He's being very bold. He's being very forthright. Verse 36, though, just so we can see uh, what's going on here. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, speaking of Jesus, as we will see, both Lord and Christ. So He's that Messiah, the one you say you're waiting for, this Jesus whom you crucified yikes right apart from the spirit of God they would crucify him there on the spot like they would do later let me tell you what you guys did you, you, you guys say you believe in Messiah you're waiting for Messiah he showed up and you killed him you're not good people Go on. this is a marketing disaster this is the word this, this is anti-pragmatism This is not going to work when it comes to a a purely kind of secular, unbelieving mindset. And then he calls them to repent, which is, you know, just take that word from your vocabulary if you want to grow a church. But he's clear and faithful with the gospel, telling them what they need to hear, not necessarily what they wanted to hear. And God blessed and 3,000? saved but Peter didn't start with I'm going to try to reach this number and how do I get there faithfully proclaiming and then God sees fit on this occasion to do something extraordinary but in the end God is going to get the glory for this this is what God did God did an extraordinary act perhaps we should turn to something else Peter said to kind of drive this home if you turn to 1 Peter Toward, a little bit toward the end of your Bible. He, he talks about this, this business of, of knowing that, that Christ is offensive to some. He's not offensive to everyone, but he is offensive to some. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians and talk about this as well. This is fundamental for us as a church as we think through outreach, as we think through evangelism, as we think growth. How does this happen? I mean, I, I want more people to be saved, don't you? I, I hope you do by god 's grace i 'm so thankful to have more opportunities than i 've ever had in my life to open my mouth and talk about christ i 'm just thrilled about it I, I, I want the church to grow in that sense and, 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 and I would love to see three people get three 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 i 'd love to see three people get saved for preaching but this is part of what we we, we long for right? We want people to experience the, the great salvation that we 've experienced and for them to know what it means to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. But Peter here understands something that's true about Christ and it's that there is an offense involved. In verse 6 it says, For it stands in Scripture... This is chapter 2, sorry. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone A cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so this precious stone in this context as we can see is Christ he's the cornerstone he's precious and if you believe in him you'll not be put to shame another way of saying be saved Verse seven so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe he goes on to say the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and then notice verse eight for our purposes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If we're going to follow the pragmatic model for outreach, we've got to take the stone out of the message because people stumble over the stone. You know, I'd be fine with this religion thing and this Christianity thing. and I think it sounds like a pretty good idea. You all seem like pretty nice people. There's some weird people, but for the most part, <laughs> if it just wasn't for this Jesus who I have to depend upon completely, entirely, solely for righteousness, for perfection, or God won't accept me. Because He is righteous and He has righteous standards. You know, I'm good with it. Apart from that, I'm in. <laughs> so what we need to do is we just need to take that part out and come to our church and find fulfillment and come to our church. And by the way, you would find fulfillment if you're reconciled to God, but that's, that, that's, not, that's not the gospel. That's fruit of the gospel. And so we have to be very, very careful. Let's put it this way in these kind of terms. If there's never any stumbling... When people hear the message, there's probably not a stone in the message. If everybody's buying it and this is a great thing and it's wonderful and it's universally accepted, there's probably a problem. There is a problem. There there, there can't be a biblical Christ. So Peter knew this. He preached this and God blessed it, sometimes extraordinarily, and that's what we would want to do. We we wouldn't want to be pragmatic in our approach we want to be faithful in our approach and that's what we end up seeing here now we're going to look at other passages as well but let's just sort of stop and think about history for a few minutes Two two significant historical events in our country's history when it comes to this business you have the Great Awakening associated with people like George Whitfield famous British preacher. And then you have the Second Great Awakening. That's 1700s, Edwards, that era. I'm oversimplifying. 1800s, Second Great Awakening. Most popular figure in the Second Great Awakening was a man named Charles Grandison Finney. I would suggest to you that there was a Great Awakening period. And the second was no awakening at all. Here's the difference and the difference is what we're talking about this morning when it comes to pragmatism. So Whitfield's approach is going to be preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ salvation in Christ, preach the gospel like in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, like in Romans, and preach Christ with clarity and preach Christ to as many people as you possibly can and many times God extraordinarily attended his preaching and many people were saved and they were saved because they believed the gospel message which has to do with Christ and what he has done amazing time in history really quite amazing second great awakening which was no awakening at all, really liked to talk about and and consider those great numbers of people. Charles Finney's approach was, as long as we use certain methods, as long as we use what were called the new measures, as long as we do these things, it guarantees significant results. In fact, I can guarantee if I'm Charles Finney, if I present a certain message a certain way, they will believe and they will be converted. There's a huge difference from biblical Christianity and what happened in the first great awakening, sovereign work of the Spirit, not through methods, other than the preaching of the gospel and God saw fit to bless extraordinarily. Second great awakening, Charles Finney was a salesman and he was good. Charles Finney is the one that we would attribute with being the inventor of the altar call. Where did that come from? It came from Charles Grandison Finney. And that was one of his measures. If he could create an emotional environment with music and all the different sorts of, of things going on, and he was this big charismatic personality, and eventually you could have people come forward, and that was part of it, part of what would secure them being converted. But you had to follow these certain measures. He had what was called the anxious bench where he would have people come and sit in the front where they could do more emotionalism and more of these things. And before you know it, they would be converted because he followed the right recipe. I want to quote Charles Grandison Finney with the utmost appreciation and affection. On this one quotation, I couldn't agree with him more. At the end of his ministry, he said, the great majority of my converts are a disgrace to the Christian religion. Amen, Charles Grandison Finney. And by the way, the wake of what happened, what came behind Finney, it's referred to sometimes in history as the burned-over district. Where he went, people were not open to listening to the gospel anymore been there, done that, didn't work. Because they heard Christianity. The fact is, they didn't hear Christianity. But they were all the more less likely to ever listen to the gospel again because of been there, done that. Sort of reminds me of what Jesus said when he talked about the Pharisees who would get people to become religious devotees and committed and he said actually you'll travel to great lengths to make a convert but you actually make them twice the sons of hell because they've had their problem solved but they don't actually need to be saved anymore well I sound pretty harsh I guess Um, oh by the way Charles Grandison Finney denied the substitutionary death of Jesus Charles Grandison Finney was a heretic Charles Grandison Finney is the hero, whether said or unsaid, of countless pastors who are alive and doing ministry today. Sometimes they'll admit it in their writings, and sometimes they won't, but where you see techniques applied that guarantee numerical results, you see devotion to Charles Grandison Finney. He was opposed in his day, but he was the big shot in his day because you wanted to sign up for his organization because he knew how to draw a crowd. And to make you successful. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians and see that this is nothing new. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't want want to be that kind of pastor. I don't want Omaha Bible Church to be that kind of church. You know what? I, I want us to turn to maybe one other passage before we go there. So if you want to find 1 Corinthians 1, Let's go to John chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Living in our day, when you, again, when, when something is set up that says, if you do these things, we promise growth in your church. It's just got, it's just Phineism. But it's actually more than that. It's just human religion apart from Christ and the sovereign work of the Spirit. George Barna, who's fallen out of evangelical popularity a little bit, but he was pretty popular. Um, So much so that I know large churches in this city have hired him in the past to teach them how to grow. George Barna said that Jesus was a marketing expert. Hmm, sounds good. We should hire Jesus to grow our church. But we can't hire Jesus because he's not here, and uh, so we'll hire George Barna, because George Barna obviously knows how Jesus is a marketing expert, and if we just follow what he says, then we'll grow a certain number of people by a certain time, and, and we're in, and we're all Phineas. Well, let's just see what, how good a marketing expert Jesus was. Um, John chapter 6, this is after Jesus is talking about the Old Testament and he's talking about um, the manna coming down uh, in the wilderness and feeding the people. Um, And then he says, I'm that bread. Okay, verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You, you, You want to be so impressed with all this story and your Old Testament knowledge, Jesus says, I'm him. Well, this didn't go over very well. They're not so sure about this, Jesus. And and so uh, time to call and time to say, okay, huddle. Okay, huddle up here, Jesus. um, You stand there. We have a disciple huddle. We need to talk to you about uh, some of these things you've been saying. It's really going to hurt the cause, and uh, it's kind of hurting our marketing efforts. It says in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Um, Jesus, uh, we're going to have to tone this down if we're ever going to be successful. Okay, We've got to give you some tips. Verse 61, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That right there. Is not the main thing we're looking at, but that right there is a pretty interesting statement when it comes to, to, to just trying to draw a crowd and having num- have numbers by following what you want to do and what is popular. Because notice, you can't do that. It's the, it's the Spirit that has to do this. Then it says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. And then he talks about knowing that someone would betray him. But then look toward the end, of, or part way into verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. Now, this goes from bad to worse. Okay, Jesus is saying, oh, I'm the hero of the Old Testament. The bread was me. Okay, I'm the gift from God who came to, 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 to give you life. And that's not going over very well. I mean, we're okay if he's a prophet, but he can't be that. And so then it just goes... And so Jesus, perhaps, they expect him to say, all right, I'll, I'll change the rhetoric a little bit or something to make it a little bit more palatable. But he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he says the Spirit is the only one who can, who can draw, and then no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. It just went from bad to worse. That, I don't think that's what people are going to be looking for either, that you actually can't even come to Jesus, and part of the problem for you not coming to Jesus is because you haven't been drawn by the Father. Take that you know then verse 66 says after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him so Jesus said to the twelve do you want to go away as well (laughs) golly you don't like what I say it's a hard truth I'm going to give you a harder truth oh and by the way um, there's the door This is how I roll, (laughs) we might say today. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, I am the answer. And 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 you guys are 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 having a fit because people are not coming to me on my terms. Well, if you need me to be a little bit more blatant, the only one anyone the only way anyone comes to me is if they come to me if the father's initiating the relationship. So stop worrying about being popular. Stop trying to get me to change the message. It's, it's, it's insane. Jesus isn't a marketing expert. He's a marketing failure if you want to go that route. I don't think he's a failure at anything. It's all on purpose. So he's not building a church that's a pseudo church. He's doing the real thing. He's doing the real thing. I don't know about you, but I just feel the temptation all the time to trim it down, to change it, to make it a little bit more palatable because I like people to like me. And I know how to sell things. I used to be a sales rep. Praise be to Jesus, I threw the plaques away. Sales rep of the quarter, you know. How'd you like those in my office as a pastor, you know? (laughs) Well, you know what? If you find Barna books on my shelf anywhere other than in the cult section, I think uh, you should just read that as sales rep of the quarter. To be blunt, it's anti-marketing in a lot of ways. Now, again, by God's grace, I have a bigger burning passion for evangelism than I've ever had in my life. God's given me more opportunities than ever before to share the gospel with people. And I'm really thankful, and I know that's true for some of you as well. But we still have the temptation... Oh, boy, do we ever have the temptation sometimes. Not too long ago, uh, a friend from from a past life, who my wife and I have tried to reach out to before, uh, came to me and said, you know, I I need help. I want to start coming to church. I need help. Great. Molly and I would love to meet with you. We'd love to talk to you. And we're excited an opportunity to, to show the love of Christ yes and to speak of the gospel to this person and they basically said okay here are my problems here's what's going on in my life and um, I, I feel really bad and I need to feel better and I know the church can make me feel better and I'm thinking to myself it can make you feel better but we have an there's an elephant in the room you know we have we, first things first, and, and you got to know that I, I'm, I'm being this nice. I, I, I wasn't like this, you know, with my veins coming out of my neck. I'm not in preaching mode, and I'm thinking this is this is this would be so great if God saved this person. But to graciously and kindly say, knowing in my mind, you know what, this would be great—another church member, another giver. I've got a bigger church. You know, there's all these things you're thinking about. Wouldn't it be great if I could tell my friends, you know, church is this big? Just say in in terms, not theologically loaded terms, basic terms that this person could understand. There really is, first things first, there's a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is your relationship with God. So let's talk about who God is. And let's talk about what he requires. And let's talk about how you don't meet the requirements, how I don't meet the requirements. Let's talk about how this great God who demands righteousness, oh, that means justice, that means perfection. You know, I'm going to explain this the best I can and and let's talk about how he sent his son to meet those requirements. And so that if you're you're trusting in him, you're you're clinging to him for his perfection. You're you're, you're believing in Him. That's what belief means: dependence, trust. You'll be reconciled to this God, and then you will feel better. But that that that's secondary. The main issue is there's a problem between you and God, and uh, you know this might sound blunt and it might sound really forthright, but the Bible describes it in such intense terms. It even talks about hostility. So you get the idea. Pray for their salvation. the response is you know what that's not what I'm looking for and in one sense I'm like rats (laughs) but in another sense it's the right thing because Christ we'll see is the wisdom of God and the power of God but Christ is also an offense and when no one finds him offensive then we need to go back to the script and stop freelancing it. What is the gospel? What are the responses to the gospel in the Bible? Everyone believing? No, Christ is great and beautiful and wonderful to some. And he's a rock of stumbling and offense to others all right, i got to make sure the message is clear. I'm going to show love, compassion, kindness, maybe even do my best to help with physical needs. But at the end of the day, I can't change the gospel and become a pragmatist. I can't do it. Therefore, I will not join the Willow Creek Association. Therefore, I will not buy into Purpose Driven. Therefore, I will not buy Barna books. Therefore, I will not read about Finney and fall in love with him. I can't. I can't. Because my theology that God saves through His Son, through the biblical gospel, affects my methodology for church growth. And it needs to be the same for you too. God saves, we don't through the gospel, which some people find very offensive. Other people find it to be the power of God (laughs) unto salvation. But it's the same message. That commitment to theology, the truth about God and how he saves, that's what I mean by theology, that commitment guards and protects my methodology And even as I have motives for people to be saved that might cause me to do crazy things that are unbiblical and unfaithful, my understanding of how God saves people keeps that in check. And that's what we're talking about. I want us to be more passionate and more committed to wanting to see people get saved, but more passionate and more committed to people being saved by the gospel and not just having a bigger crowd. I get really nervous. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 1, if you would, finally. I get really nervous uh, when the common question that sometimes people ask me, when I say, oh, I went to this conference, or I went and did this, um, and the common question is, how many people were there? Now, you know what? It's interesting to know. I took a class last week at Legionnaire Academy, a doctoral class, and there were 11 other pastors in the class glad you asked (laughs) you know again numbers kind of significant because that tells you wow it's a small class that would be really cool to be there because there's lots of interaction and uh, i like mike horton too and uh, that would have been neat to be in that class i'm not saying you shouldn't ask me about numbers but sometimes you almost get the sense that oh so how many people were there translation if there were a lot of people there it was successful Think about that. I would love it if more and more people get saved, but more and more people getting saved because they hear the gospel and they believe the gospel. All right, first Corinthians is, a, is an awesome passage when it comes to this, this whole matter. By now the Corinthians, they had bought all the Barnabooks. Um, they were members of the Willow Creek Association. They were totally into fads. Uh, and their mindset was the Paul stop being so forthright stop talking about things like atonement stop talking about things like sin right would you just stop it already because we know what the corinthian people are like we've done the demographic surveys you don't know what we know and if you knew what we knew we could teach you a thing or two about outreach so you should buy our books paul Obviously, I'm overstating it, but that's the idea. First Corinthians 1 and 2 reads like it was addressing that issue because how about this? It was addressing that issue because there's nothing new under the sun. First Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, notice he equates the cross with the gospel, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul is already... In a sense, we could say he's already nervous, okay, to, to not have it be all about his elocution, okay? He, I, I'm going to preach the gospel, but I'm even careful the way I preach the gospel, lest the cross be emptied of its power. If people are going to believe this, this truth from me. They're really going to believe the gospel. They're not going to believe because I'm just such a great motivational speaker. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly, same word for foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's going to call on Old Testament authority. God is this kind of God. God likes to work this way. Well, How does He like to work? He's going to preach, have a message preached that's foolishness to some, but it's salvation to others, or that's power of God to others, to those who are being saved. That's just how God does things. But do notice, please, that the same message, same message some people are saying is ludicrous. Others are saying, oh, divine wisdom. And that's what happens. You preach the gospel, and some people are going to say, You are the biggest idiot I've ever met. I thought you went to college, you know, or whatever. And others are going to say, To borrow from the Apostle Paul, they won't say it this way, but to borrow from Romans 10. My, what beautiful feet you have. Because <laughs> you're a messenger. You, you bring good news. And they say, I, this, this is exactly true and right, is what they say. But please, please notice, it's the same message. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Rhetorically, they're not to be found in the church. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The implied answer is yes. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. Notice, you want to know what pleases God? pleases God. Here's what pleases God. It pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach, that is the gospel in this context, to save those who believe. That brings God pleasure. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, so Jesus taught Paul how to be a marketing disaster, and he's a success. (laughs) uh, Paul says, I already know. Don't give me more data from your surveys. I already know what the Jews want. I already know what the Gentiles want. And by the way, he could say, and you know me well enough to know I could deliver. Taught by Gamaliel, secular Jewish history would tell us that he was some kind of teacher. But he says, strategically, purposefully, my resolve is to give the people what they don't want. (laughs) I'm giving them the gospel instead. Because here's why. Here's where theology affects methodology. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, that's called by the Holy Spirit. That's almost synonymous with election in Paul's writings both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love it! His theology, i.e. his commitment to knowing that God calls people, read Romans chapter 8, 29, 30, and when God calls people they most certainly will be saved. This is internal calling the way Paul uses the term. It's used a little bit differently by other writers the way Paul uses calling. He always, should never say always and never, I know, Checked every reference. Paul always uses called for those who are saved or who will be saved. He knows that to be true, that the called will embrace it. Therefore, that's his theology. He knows that's how God saves people. Therefore, he's going to preach the same message, and it's going to affect his methodology, whether he's talking to Jews or Greeks, knowing that a lot of them are going to think he's an idiot. Ta-da! It's awesome! It's awesome! But we have this temptation to think, oh, man. But if I tell them that, they're going to think I'm a fool. Yep, that's what it says. (laughs) You sound like the Bible. Now here's what he does. Now he's going to insult the Corinthians. (laughs) So (laughs) sometimes it's good to be insulted. So I'm going to insult you by reading it. it's amazing this is such a good check for us because you're thinking you know what if i say that to those people they're going to think i'm a nut job and paul's saying would you please stop and think how you got converted it wasn't through some gimmicky fatty thing it wasn't how you got converted so that's what he does he says for consider your calling he's pointing the finger right at them hey have you looked in the mirror lately you want to change the gospel message to some other kind of message. It's not really the gospel, so that the gospel, whatever that is, can be successful, so you can have a church, whatever that is, can be bigger. Hey, would you please look in the mirror? How did you become a Christian? You didn't become a Christian that way, if you are a Christian. Okay, let's see what he says. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Ouch. Not many were powerful. Ouch. Not many were of noble birth. Ouch. Ouch. Some of you are thinking he doesn't say all, he just says not many, so I'm the exception. Well, that's not really the idea. <laughs> he said, Look, how in the world did you become a Christian? It wasn't through some savvy, stinking marketing project. Oh, right? What, he, what does he do? He says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish. Put your finger on foolish if you would, and this is a common theme. He says Folly in verse 21, he says foolish in verse 20, and he says in verse 18, folly, and in verse 18 specifically, the word of the cross is folly. So in verse 27 where he says, but God chose what is foolish, what is folly, he's talking about the cross. God chose the cross. God chose the cross. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. How about this? This is awesome, verse 22. This is for Omaha Bible Church for our application. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That we would never say, we figured out a methodology, let's publish it in a book so other churches can grow like we do. That we would never say that, because if we say that, we say, we have figured out a methodology that is guaranteed to work. Or, that's on the corporate level from the preaching or the church standpoint, or no individual will ever, will ever say, Oh, I became a Christian because after earning my third Ph.D., I uh, figured it all out, and uh, yes. I, 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 God chooses what is foolish. Christ, 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 Christ. When people are saved, who gets the glory? Who's boasted in? Let's keep reading. He says right there. Verse 30, and because of Him, this is God's doing, theology applied to methodology, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Look around and see, how did you become a Christian? Because of Him and His work in your life, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is rocking good. It is so good. God saves through the gospel of Christ so that when someone does get saved, you say, God, thank you for saving me. And this changes everything. He's the hero. He's the hero of it all. And and it does change everything. Not only methodology, you understand the theology of how God saves people. It even changes the way you talk. I don't, you'll, you'll start to hear it. You, you hear less and less people, the more they learn and grow and grow, they, they say less and less, I made a decision. And you hear less and less people saying, so when did you make a decision for Jesus? You hear more and more things like, not that that's inherently bad, but, but you're pretty special to have figured out to make a decision. You hear more and more, so, so when were you saved? Because God is the Savior. He saves It's true, you do make a decision because you must believe, right? It's a command to believe. And if you don't believe, you're not a Christian. The more you learn, the more you grow. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 will have you to know that even the faith is a gift from God because at the end of the day, you're going to boast in God because God did it all. As Peter, we didn't go there, but in in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about how God has caused us to be born again. So at the end of the day, who are we going to boast in? We're going to boast in boast in the Lord. This couldn't be more anti-marketing technique, fad, Phineasque, manipulation. It just isn't. Just remember too. There are huge false religions in the world. Emphasis on huge numbers don't mean. Success in the eyes of God I've shared this before in different settings I don't know about on a Sunday morning here but I find it rather interesting in one city the largest evangelical church <clears throat> by evangelical they would on their doctrinal statement would have a commitment to the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone And the largest mainline liberal church whose pastor, at least at one point in time, didn't believe in the deity of Christ, don't know about the current pastor. Both had something in common. Two things. Number one, they were the largest. Number two, they were both part of the Willow Creek Association. Where you learn methodologies for church growth. So you can grow a church with the Spirit of God and you can grow a church without the Spirit of God. But if you're the evangelical following the same methodology as the anti-evangelical and growing, I really think it would be helpful to wonder how it is you're growing. And is this really the Spirit of God who's doing this? Or are we just really good at marketing like those who are actually enemies of the cross just because we're growing doesn't mean we're succeeding but gospel, gospel, gospel clear, straightforward with love and compassion gospel, clear, clear gospel and there's growth who do we boast in? we do boast, we say God this is amazing this is awesome thank you More, please. (laughs) Give us more opportunities. Give us more privileges. For another day, we could do a a study. We won't do it now. Between, in the Bible, the general call that we offer to people, calling people to believe in Jesus. And the special call, sometimes theologians call it the effectual call, the effective call, the call of the Holy Spirit that is internal. And you can see both of them in Scripture. We've been called to call people to repentance, call people to faith in Christ. Acts 17, all men everywhere. Great commission, right? All nations. We give the general call to everyone. Holy Spirit, effectual call. To those God, Ephesians 1, has chosen before the foundation of the world. And the Holy Spirit uses the general call in drawing people to salvation. Where we get into huge trouble is where we start losing the distinction between the two and we start confusing them or intermingling them. And then we look like Charles Finney or someone like that. Well, in one sense, this would be a downer of a message. But in another sense, this isn't a downer of a message at all. We know what we're called to do. Preach Christ to everyone. It's wonderful and it's magnificent and it's great when people get saved and we boast in Christ and they boast in Christ because Christ did it. So it's wonderful. We just need to make sure that we're not overstepping our bounds and confusing our roles with what God's role is in all of this. God finds pleasure. I love that it pleased God. God finds pleasure to use the foolishness of preaching the gospel to bring people to salvation. It's awesome. He doesn't guarantee us more numbers, a bigger church, anything like that. But when people are converted, we say, God has done a great thing here. God has done a great thing here. Well, in light of the isms, let's end on 2 Timothy chapter 2. In light of the isms, let's end today, and we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today as the ultimate conclusion to all of this a great lead-in before we eat and drink bread and wine as Jesus said is a related passage in its 2 Timothy chapter 2 as a pastor and even just as a Christian this has become nearest and dearest to my heart in more recent days <clears throat> and perhaps in your life as well we talked about this not that many weeks ago when we looked at this passage Timothy is obviously struggling. Timothy is, you know, maybe we put it in today's terms, he's thinking about paying the subscription to the association. He's thinking about buying the wrong books maybe. He's at least struggling with encouragement in ministry, persecution, things aren't going the uh, the way perhaps he would want them to go. And Paul calls him, with love and affection and strength, to be faithful, and he captures it so well in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, in those opening three words, summarizing the whole thing. 2 Timothy 2, 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, christ Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we not only have these words, Jesus in his infinite wisdom gives us bread and wine to be used. For what purpose? Do this in remembrance of me. It is about me, Jesus says. And do this and keep doing this until I come again. So you need to do what timothy needed to do keep remembering my perfect gospel my perfect atonement and so how fitting it is for us as we tend to drift history shows us toward isms in the name of christ still how fitting it is that god gave us this great gift called the supper eat and drink in remembrance of Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together. Thank you for, um, in your perfect sovereignty, calling us to be here. That we're here gathered in the name of your great Son, uh, with eyes wide open, knowing that it would be so easy for us to, to be Christian in name only. Please, by your grace and according to your spirit, help us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. That he is the fulfillment of all of those promises made about Him, that He is the greater David, that He is the one who would not sin as David did, and He is the one who would perfectly be our righteousness. And Lord, now as we eat and as we drink, may this be a time of remembering Jesus Christ, all that He has done for us who have believed in Him. In Jesus' name.